Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, November 24th. We kick off with another edition of Ask the Doctor with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. This week, a focus on the newly announced rollout of COVID-19 vaccines for kids between the ages of 5 and 11. And as always, Dr. Janney answers questions as sent in by you, the listeners. Next is the final installment in our series on financial literacy as November is Financial Literacy Month. This time out, Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada, discusses the impact of life events when it comes to mapping out our personal financial plans. Do you have a will? Well, if you do, you're actually in the minority, as the latest stats indicate that only one-third of Canadians have a will. We hear details of a new online company that's making estate planning more accessible and a whole lot more affordable. And finally, have you ever heard of space law? We get details on this -this out-of-this-world governance, what it means, and why the UN is updating the laws surrounding outer space for the first time in 50 years. He is Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, and he joins us once again to answer your COVID-19 questions. Good morning, Dr. Janney. Good morning. Well, we're ready to roll out the COVID vaccine for kids, but many people still have questions before their kids get the jab. So if you can give us, again, a Coles Note version of what makes this vaccine special for the 5 to 11-year-old set uh, different than the 12-plus set. Right. So this vaccine currently in Canada is the Pfizer vaccine. So what is different for this age group is we're actually giving them a little less vaccine. So it's a smaller dose and they've changed the buffer. They've changed the basically the salt water solution they add to the to the, the vial before they inject it. And that's because over the last year, they've been able to improve the buffer so it doesn't have to be held at that minus 80 degrees Celsius. That, that big problem we had early with the Pfizer vaccine that it could only be thawed for a couple hours and it made it hard to distribute. So we, we've been able to adjust that over the last year and this is what we're using in adults and, and, and uh, in the vaccine now. And we've reduced the amount that the child gets. So obviously a, a um, six-year-old is a little smaller than a 50-year-old, so we give them a little less vaccine. And two shots as well? Still two shots, that's correct, and um, ready to uh, to go out now. So this will be a different vial, so, so there's no confusion with the labeling and how much somebody should get. So that's why we're waiting for the new uh, pediatric dose to be distributed across Canada. We're not just going to use the same vials where there could be any confusion. So these are different printed, different labeled with full instructions on on what the kids are supposed to receive. All right, let's start with the questions. We've got a whole bunch that rolled in this morning. This person asking, my six-year-old had COVID two, three weeks ago and was asymptomatic. Should I register him today for the vaccine or wait for a period of time? So just like the adults, we want to make sure we're waiting. We don't want to be... uh, boosting uh, a response while you might still have some lingering immune response from before. And and this is even why we space out the booster in Canada. We don't want to be going right away. So wait a little bit, but uh, how long to wait is the question to ask your pediatrician and get in there so that we're getting it right for each individual patient. But yeah, we want to make sure that there's probably, you know, two months, three months after that initial infection before we're boosting. Uh, Just just like we're, we're doing with the second vaccine dose, don't want to be too close to that, that primary infection if you want to get great immunity afterwards. Okay. Got a great question here, Dr. Janney, and that is involving something that we wouldn't have been talking about a few weeks ago since we didn't have eligibility for the 5-year-old to 11-year-old group. 
Um, if you have a child that is almost 12, like within mm-hmm. a few months, mm-hmm. are you better to wait for the full-dose vaccine instead of the pediatric dose? That's a great question and one that I, you know, been asked by a lot of friends. And um, so I've talked to, to a few of the healthcare professionals, and the view is that we should actually get that first dose whenever it's offered because there's no point sitting there for another four or five weeks with no protection. What's going to happen, though, is that if the child is now eligible for the, the adult dose on their booster, that's what they'll be getting. They'll be getting the larger dose on their boost. So if they're only able to get that 5 to 11 dose right now, they'll get a, the pediatric dose on the first shot. And then if they're in the different age category, when it's time eight weeks down the road for their booster, they'll get the, the adult size booster that's appropriate for their age group. Okay, this one, um, a little bit convoluted, but a good question, I think. Uh, this person saying, I had AZ as my first dose, Pfizer in June as my second, then I had to travel to work to the U.S., so got a second dose of Pfizer to cross the border. Is that considered a booster, even though they weren't six months apart, or do I still need a third dose of Pfizer? Confused about it. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, That will be viewed as fully immunized. Now, what we have to worry about is I wouldn't worry about getting that third Pfizer dose six months after, unless you're in an at-risk group. If you are in a group with, um, you know, that that there may be a suboptimal immune response, so somebody who's received an organ transplant or or in a specific age group, uh, that may be different. But for the average person, uh, you'd be looking to stretch if you need a third shot out to the the longer intervals. So uh, many people will be waiting close to a year for their third dose, and and I believe that that would be what this individual would be looking at. They'll be fully immunized now but eventually there may be a booster and that's again a great question for personal reasons whether you have underlying conditions to talk to your your primary care provider all right this one here is something we talked about quite a bit a few weeks ago and just some clarification said should seniors between the ages of 65 and 70 get a booster shot get that third shot or is it under a special circumstance in Alberta right now, it's everybody 70 and up unless you have a specific reason. So we, we do anticipate that changing. We, we did see NACI approve and, and indicate that the third shot is safe for everybody over 18. But right now, and, and this is largely due to ensure that we can properly schedule and get priority out, but it's people 70 and up unless you have one of the other underlying health conditions. Dr. Jenny, why is, is it's a Pfizer shot for the kids, right? The pediatric one? So why Pfizer over Moderna for kids? So Moderna has requested that their data be evaluated as well. So this is because they're not identical. Health Canada will not just rubber stamp things. Uh, A different vaccine requires all of the data to be provided to Health Canada. It's going to go through the same review that Pfizer did. So although we know that these vaccines are very comparable, they are not the same. They have their own little quirks. So as a result, that will be a separate application to Health Canada. Dr. Jenny, I'm wondering if you can just speak to us uh, a little bit about the cases that we have seen um, in the past, uh, I guess, several days, if you will. It seems to me that we're seeing that percentage rate of about 5 to 5.5% in hundreds of cases, like you do, uh, of anywhere from 300 to 500 cases. It seems to be stagnating. Is this what we call plateauing, and, and where do we see it going from here? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I, I do agree it, it looks as though it's plateauing. So if it is coming down, it's definitely not coming down as fast as it was before. So, you know, we, we are basically seeing the, the level of viral transmission that our current health restrictions is going to allow. 
Um, where do we go from here? That's a great question. It means there's still lots of virus in the community. It means as with wave one, wave two, wave three, if we begin to ease up on restrictions, we can expect those numbers to start going back up. Um, you know, when we look at the full metrics, the, the hospitalizations, ICU, they're not really coming down quickly anymore. When we see the new cases, as you pointed out, they're, they're stagnant percent positive stagnant and in places such as Calgary that R value that replication value has come back up to one or, or even slightly above one in some health areas so that means basically every infected person is going to pass that back on to another person so unless we do other steps increase vaccination um, we you know will not be able to lower those numbers further at this point. Dr. Janney, we have a few more questions. Can you hang on for two? Of course. Thank you so much. Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the UFC, will be back with a few more COVID questions for him after this. More with Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist from the University of Calgary. Now, Dr. Janney, since we have you on some clarification, if, if you will, on mm. the remarks that Dr. Hinshaw had said yesterday about Moderna in a certain age group, ages 12 to 29. She's saying it should be avoided for that age group. Can you break down why? Yeah, so what we've seen with this in the larger trials, so these, you know, were not evident in the the smaller uh, phase three clinical trials, is that there does appear to be a slightly higher risk of that myocarditis or swelling of the heart muscle with the Moderna. Now, this is still a tiny, tiny risk, but it appears as though that risk is even lower with the with the Pfizer vaccine. So if we have both vaccines available and, and we can choose one to give to that age group, we're going to obviously go with the one with the lowest possible risk. So it, it's not as though there's a significant risk with Moderna, but it's just there is an even better option. And, and that's what the recommendation is for that age group. Okay, fair enough. Hey, we still have some questions for you about um, the vaccines and, and the variants. So someone mm-hmm. asking, do, do, does the, ver- the vaccine itself, and as we get more vaccines, does that contribute Contribute to more variants of COVID. Yeah, so in theory, that is a possibility, but what we're not seeing is that happen in the real world. And the way this would normally work is if you pick something on the surface of the virus, for example, for the vaccine to recognize, you're going to eventually eliminate the virus that has that something. And the viruses that have been able to mutate that are the ones that are going to escape the vaccine. The difference this time, though, is the vaccines that were designed for this virus have targeted a little piece of the virus that it doesn't appear able to change. It's actually targeting the the surface of the virus that sticks to our body, to our cells. And as the virus changes that, it no longer can get in. So we've been able to isolate exactly the part of the virus it needs to infect us. And if it changes it, then the virus is no longer able to infect us. So we, we seem to have been able to avoid this vaccine selection this time. Will a virus eventually escape? It could. But right now, we've seen a number of variants, and the, the vaccine has been very effective against all of them so far. You know, we, we, we talk a lot about the vaccine, but we also have talked a lot about that herd immunity. Can you give mm-hmm. us an update as to, I know the, the goalposts have moved due to the Delta variant. Yes. And we called it the uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Where are we with that herd immunity? We're getting much closer, but we're still not there. So the modeling that we have seen is is suggesting that you need about 90% vaccinated to get there. And the problem with that is, for example, in Alberta, we've got 10 to 12% of the population is under the age of 12. So right away, unless 100% of those people vaccinated above the age of 12 
we're not going to get there. That's one reason why this, this new vaccine for those 5 to 11 is critical. That's going to help us get into that population who right now has no option. So as those numbers come up, we'll get even closer to herd immunity. But unless we get more adults vaccinated, we're probably not going to hit that, that magic number where we will be able to really ease off on healthcare restrictions. In the meantime, we're going to have to wait until there's enough natural immunity in the community added to the vaccinated, and, and eventually we may get to some level where we have community-level protection. And before we let you go, Dr. Janney, your final thoughts, just, you know, as a scientist, as a dad, about, you know, those shots, the, mm-hmm. the pediatric version for kids 5 to 11, and the fact that we have it now available to us in Alberta. Yeah, for us, uh, you know, even as a family, this is a game changer. We, we've been able to have everybody but one family member protected. Um, so we've had to continue to be cautious about that. Uh, take the family at a large events where that individual could be at risk. Um, but also, you know, just grandparents, immunocompromised relatives. Those have been lingering concerns for the last year since since the rest of the families had access to vaccines. So this will be a game changer. Um, you know, schools, I think we, like most families, have been uh, you know, forced to move kids online multiple times, pretty disruptive. So we can't wait to get you know, our, our group back to as close to normal as possible. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. You've done it again. Uh, covered a lot of ground. Thank you for taking the time with us once again, Dr. Janney. You're welcome, guys. Take care. Have a great day. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. November is Financial Literacy Month. We've been connecting with Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada, each week to shine the spotlight on financial issues facing Canadians. Today, focusing on life events when it comes to our finances. Good morning to you, Bruce. Hello there. Uh, What do you mean when you say life events in in terms of our money? Okay, so every human on this planet proceeds through a lovely narrative that includes some predictable and some unpredictable life events. Mm. So you're born, you go to school, some people do post-secondary education, some people fall in love, and maybe they get married or live with their lover. Uh, People get jobs, they (laughs) lose jobs, they buy a home, they sell a home, they start a family, they expand a family, they lose a job, they retire, and one day, they're dead. (laughs) They're just dead. They're all dead. That sums it up. That just sums it up. So often we talk about financial literacy as this amorphous thing and everybody needs to know about everything at the same time. It's simply not true. So one of the things that the FCAC is focused on is kind of just-in-time learning and making sure that we talk about uh, different topics of personal finance at the relevant time in your life and focused on life events. So do you want to hear my favorite new baby gift? Yes, please. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about my new baby baby gift. Um, So for someone who I love, instead of um, buying like a thing, what I give is $100 to the kids' RESP, but it includes time with me. 
So what you do is you book a time. I mean, I think that's, that's the, the best part. It's time on giving. You get that for free. Um, so what we do is we book an appointment. Once the kid has the their social insurance number, which is all you need, and then I book a time. Back in the day, it was on the phone. These days, it's Zoom. And then the exhausted parent sits in front of their computer, and I oversee their sign-up to an RESP. And then I put the first hundred dollars in. Wow. Well, awesome. Uh, my youngest is three years old, uh, but we missed that. So if we can uh, schedule something. Yeah, mine's 12, but I'll still okay. take that, honey. <laughs> you just want your hundred bucks, you greedy goblins. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great idea, though. So you know that they're yeah. setting it up. I mean, you're really doing yeah. them a big favor, right? Because you're ensuring that they are setting it up. And then you start them with that hundred. And I believe, is it still in this province in Alberta? What you put in, is it the first hundred is matched by the government? It's up to $200 is matched by the federal government. And um, so it's genius. Now, the other thing that I do, and this is a mandatory part of the process, otherwise I cease being your friend, and that is you have to automate the transfer. For some families, putting that full amount in there, especially if you've got more than one kid, is really tough. Like 200 bucks a month can be really tough. Uh, but if you can, you need to automate it. And if you can't do the full amount, I still want you to automate 20 bucks a month. So mm -hmm. 10 bucks a month. It doesn't matter. You need to automate that so that it happens every single month and you're not trying to catch up and you're not thinking about it. It just happens. Because if you do that, rest assured, if you've got a diversified low cost portfolio, it's going to grow over the course of, you know, the 17 years that you've got, if you start at the beginning to somewhere in the range of 50 to a hundred grand. I'm not kidding. I am not wow. kidding. That's awesome. It's, yeah, when you put it yeah. in that uh, perspective. It's interesting, as you mentioned, it's not a one-size-fits-all when we're talking financial literacy and education surrounding our finances. You have a great example when it comes to, for example, an 18-year-old kid and how you would not want to you know, sit down and take the time to talk to them about mortgages. So what are, what are we looking at for those kids 17 to 19 years old? What's important that they need to know? Credit cards. Yeah. They need to know about credit cards. It's the number one thing. And they probably got a little bit of experience by the time they're 18 using plastic because they may well have a debit card, right? They're yeah. not forking over cash in the way that, that I was at that age. But as they hit 18, two things are happening. Number one, they are they have more autonomy. But two, they could be physically outside of your home. Right. So if they go away to school somewhere or they get a job somewhere, they're physically outside of your home and you've it's harder to keep tabs on them. Even if they're in your home, they're clearly in the basement gaming 24 <laughs> seven. You know, like I think they're home. I don't know. I smell dope or that's incense. It's I don't know what's happening. It's legal now. Yeah. yeah, it's legal. It's totally legal. Um, so so you need to have those lessons because they don't relate to and I'm, I'm generalizing here. But in terms of behavioral science, we know this. They don't relate to the money that they put on their credit card as being their own. Mm. They don't relate to it that way. It, humans don't relate to it that way. It's someone else's money. The pain of spending is way less torturous when you put it on a credit card. Sure, it's easy. So That's how they to, get us. It, it's easy. It's so easy. You just put it on your card. I'll pay it off one day, someday. So for an 18-year-old, that is the key lesson. And you should have that tool in their hands. You know, they should have access to that with a low limit. And they need to develop that discipline to pay it off in full every single month. Wow. And if they've got a month where they can, it's like, okay, child of mine, <laughs> what are you going to do about that? Mm -hmm. Are you getting extra shifts? Are you, what are you doing? Because it needs to go to zero at the end of every month.
Is that is that really what financial literacy is all about? It's it's speak. I mean, let's face it, mortgages are important to everybody. But you're right, eighteen year olds don't really care about it right now. So, yeah. you know, is that what you mean by when you talk specifically about financial literacy, Bruce? Is it targeting what you're teaching to the actual age that that person is? Yes, that's a big part of it. What I would say, and my definition on financial literacy is a bit different than some, is I actually don't care if people are literate, which is blasphemy Mm. in my world. What I care about is that they behave in a way that supports the life they want to lead. So really, I want great financial behavior. Whether you know what the acronym RESP or TFSA or APR, I don't care if you know any of that stuff. I want you to do the right things. And the analogy for me is food, right? Like, I don't know the nutritional component to whatever. All I know is in order to keep my gorgeousness intact, (laughs) I need to eat relatively few carbs and treats and lots of vegetables and drink lots of water. So I do that. If you've seen a photo of me online, it's like outrageous. Um, it's you are, you are the quite a specimen. And I'm very modest as well. <laughs> that is not about literacy around food. It's about behavior. And mm. so that's what we want. We want behavior around money. And literacy can be a component of that. It can be a part of that. Certainly there's things that you need to learn, but uh, it's not the outcome. It's not the end result that I want. Well, it's funny because when we say uh, financial literacy month, yeah, it, it does hold a weight to it, but you're saying be well. And, and I guess to a certain extent, when you're giving the example of the parents, of the new parents and the parents of those kids who are 18, taking care of those we love and, and imparting the knowledge we have on them. And let's just one other life event here is a lot of us are adult children with aging parents. And there is a whole amount of stuff that comes to um, our finances that relates to aging parents. So what does it cost to have someone move into assisted living? What is a reverse mortgage? Is that right Mm. for my parent? How do I know when the cognitive ability that my parent had 10 years ago uh, has declined such that I need to get in there and be overseeing bills and having some really tough conversations about um, navigating finances that I wouldn't have had to have earlier in time. And that's tough stuff. It has been a pleasure to chat with you all this month and, and you've shared so much important information. Thank you very much for, for being with us through Financial Literacy Month, Bruce. It has been my total pleasure. I hope this isn't the only time. I, I'm going to have to make up other Hallmark holidays in order to earn my right to come back on your show. Today's National Credit Card Statement Day. You know Talk what? To me. Our listeners love you so much. We could probably have you on every day, but maybe we'll stretch it out a bit for the next time. Yeah. Okay. Besides, I got to go work out and work on my abs. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Bye. us. Have a wonderful day. Bruce Celery, CEO of Credit Canada, and you can find him online, moolala.ca, or go to creditcanada.com slash FLM, Financial Literacy Month, creditcanada.com slash FLM. And uh, you can also go to, you know, the Government of Canada has some great websites and information that Bruce sent us yep. just to, to pass along. So there's lots of information information out there to help you and just get informed right yep are you one of the the two-thirds of canadians who do not have a will a new online tool is making estate planning more accessible this morning we are joined by founder and ceo of epilogue wills daniel goldgut good morning to you daniel good morning to you too it's an incredible number when you think about it two-thirds of canadians without a will do we have any idea why such a large percentage of canadians don't have the document 
Yeah, we have a pretty good idea. I mean, I think generally speaking, the the time it takes to do it, the cost, uh, I mean, frankly, it's something that often people think of as being annoying or inconvenient. Uh, and so it's it's one of those things that's easy to put off and, and think I'll do it in a year or I'll do it in five or I'll do it in 10. What has the, the process been in the past, Daniel? If, if you grabbed a will off the internet, was it even legit? Would it be accepted as legal? Yeah, so what's interesting about that is really what makes a will legal in, in any of, of the provinces in Canada is that it's it's signed properly. So it's not necessarily true, just that the document needs to be legal, you know, out of the gate. It's that, you know, the document contains all the important information that it needs to contain and then that it gets signed properly. And so for us at Epilogue Wills, you know, our company was started by estate planning lawyers and it's run by estate planning lawyers. And so we make sure that the documents that we do create are of the highest quality and that they're very comprehensive. And then ultimately, once those documents are signed properly, that's what makes them legally binding. Daniel, you've got the accessibility. And again, maybe the timing with the pandemic may be fantastic and that people might not want to be going into the offices of, of, of different lawyers and, and getting running around town, if you will. And you've got the legitimacy of the document. But I'm wondering about the cost compared to, to going in and seeing a lawyer, for example, versus doing something like this online. Yeah, so the, the cost is a, f- a fraction of what it costs to go see lawyers. I mean, the, the prices that lawyers charge certainly varies um, you know, across each province and across the country. But for us, I mean, to get just sort of a basic will with incapacity documents for an individual is $179. Uh, and for a couple doing it together is $289. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a fraction of what it costs to go see a lawyer. That is a fraction, a small fraction. So that makes it way more accessible for so many people. Why, if someone's listening, why is it so important they even have a will? I think people often don't realize what it means not to have a will. And what I mean by that is sort of what the consequences are of not having a will. And there's consequences across sort of a number of different areas. So if, if you haven't named an executor, so you haven't chosen who that person is going to be, who's going to make sure that, you know, all your, uh, you know, stuff gets distributed. If you haven't picked that person, someone needs to apply to court to become that person, which means that your your assets are frozen until that time. So just that, that simple act of naming an individual to start the process is so key. And then beyond that, deciding, you know, who's going to get your stuff. If you don't have a will and you haven't made that decision, it's going to be based on the rules of the province. And you can be certain that that, you know, might not be exactly what everybody mm. wants to happen. Uh, and so by not having a will, you haven't made any of these choices. And the last one I'll just mention is guardianship. So if you've got minor children or pets and you don't have a will, you'll have sort of missed the opportunity to name, you know, the person or people that you think should be taking care of, um, of your children and pets. Just uh, before we let you go, uh, Daniel, you know, for me, it was a case of, you know, waiting until you've had kids and in your house you want to be in. Is it better to wait until you, you know, quote unquote, have all your ducks in a row and all the people that might be named in your will? Or should we get a will and then amend it? Is it, is it better to, to have some kind of a working document moving ahead in life? Yeah, so it's, it's certainly better to do the second. So, you know, a will is a document that you should create to reflect your wishes today. And then you should you should change it you know, as soon as you want to if those if those wishes change, if you want someone else to be the guardian or the someone else to be the executor. I think sort of traditionally people decide, you know, I would wait and I would create this one perfect will when all my kids uh, were born and I had, you know, X dollars in the bank and I'd make it once and I'd never change it. Um, but I, I think the, the, the better way of looking at it is I'm going to make it so that it reflects my wishes today. And then as those wishes change and my needs change, I'll update the will. 
which used to cost a whole lot of money to go to the lawyer every time. And this is a far more economical way to do it. Thank you so much, Daniel, for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Daniel Golgut, co-founder and CEO of Epilogue Wills. You can go online, epiloguewills.com. Could we be on the verge of an arms race in space? And how do we keep the peace in space as well? Joining us to help understand the laws governing space is Greg Autry, clinical professor of space leadership, policy, and business at Arizona State University. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you doing? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we get into what might be changed, what are the rules currently for outer space? Uh, well, as regarding uh, militarization, they're, uh, they're fairly ambiguous and fairly limited. Um, the use of uh, or placement of nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space is prohibited clearly in the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. Uh, but other than that, um, space um, remains an active military domain with, uh, you know, a lot of observation satellites and a lot of attempts to uh, be able to uh, to take those out, uh, as, as well as some uh, interesting uh, uh, unknown objects in space that uh, people are, are hypothesizing about what, what their purposes are. Greg, I'm wondering, you know, when, when we read the stat that it's the first time that this you know, document or, or this, uh, these parameters have been updated since 1967, why it would take so long? Because certainly we've been active in space. Remember, you know, Star Wars in the 80s and all the satellites are up there. But, you know, we, we've been putting things into space, looking at, you know, weaponizing and, and we, you could even talk about space junk. Why so long? Um, you know, that's a really good question. It has been neglected. And, and the exciting thing here is that the first committee, which is at the highest level of the UN, is discussing it. Um, but, you know, we've got the usual problems. A, a resolution was put forward and, and the usual suspects, China, Cuba, uh, North Korea, Iran, vote, voted against it. Um, there, there's nothing new here. The Russians uh, just did a really destructive ASAT test, which you know, uh, was a threat to the International Space Station. The Chinese did a very similar one in, in 2008. Um, the U.S. and India have done a couple that were a lot less destructive, but nonetheless uh, uh, not aimed in the right direction towards uh, the peaceful use of space. So you talked earlier about some unknown objects that are out there. What might they be? And is this sort of, you know, perhaps the first steps towards seeing some sort of military conflict in space? Yeah, you know, something could could go wrong when uh, when you have things out there that are, are not clearly identified in their purpose. So, um, you know, the U.S. has a, a very cool uh, military uh, uh, remote control unmanned space shuttle uh, called the X-37B. Uh, they never say exactly what that does, um, but people who track it are, are amazed with its maneuverability and such. And, and suppose that it's out there to take a look at other countries' assets and perhaps it would have the ability to uh, uh, to disable them or capture them should, uh, should that be necessary. Um, there are other pieces of material that are classified as space debris, which uh, people who are experts in tracking them believe are are maneuvering themselves and so clearly they're not space debris um the chinese and russians have both developed systems that are clearly designed to go take close looks at uh, american and other satellites so that stuff is out there if something goes wrong uh and you know there's a collision instead of an observation or some sort of interference you you could uh, have a provocation uh, certainly though what the russians did just last week is is a significant provocation and could result in in damage to uh valuable systems or even loss of human life 
I'm wondering, Professor, it's fine to put something like this to paper to have some, again, a framework of, of parameters of what is expected. But with the vastness of space, in, you know, in, in so many countries on Earth, how do we police something like this and how do we stay on top of, you know, making sure countries follow the line? Yeah, that that's the question. And that's why the U.S. Uh, now has a space force, something that I, I strongly support by putting a group of people whose expertise uh, from the top to the bottom is in the space domain in charge of those assets. Um, that said, though, um, you know, hopefully we can get agreement that is legally binding with some sort of repercussions here on Earth, at least towards nation state actors. Once you get into a variety of private and commercial companies operating in their own interest, it gets ever more complex. And the UN's uh, Outer Space Treaty, which does not allow for sovereign territory anywhere on a celestial body, for instance, kind of creates uh, a lack of rule of law because if, if it's not anybody's territory, that sounds good, uh, but nobody's in charge of policing it. So, you know, what happens when two private actors conflict uh, on the moon? Uh, nobody knows. So it's uh, fascinating. So what do you think a new treaty should say in it? Should there be some specific rules? Yeah, well, uh, the one that I think everybody wants immediately is a test ban on uh, anti-satellite weapons like the ones that the Russians just launched and that the Chinese did back in 2007, which are a real threat uh, uh, to everything in orbit by creating massive amounts of orbital debris. So we need an absolute ban on any more testing of these objects in low Earth orbit that create debris. Uh, That just needs to happen. Incredible. And yeah, we're going back 57 years in time, back to 1967. Uh, Something that's going to continue to evolve, I would think, Professor, and we appreciate your discussion and your time this morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. No problem. Have a great day. That is Greg Outree, Clinical Professor of Space Leadership, Policy and Business at Arizona State University in Sioux, when he said... You know, it's been made fun of. It's been poked fun of, I think, for a couple of years now. The USA Space Force. Right. And I Wouldn't you have a cool uniform if you were on that team? And here's a university professor saying this is what we need. Mm-hmm. We need a Space Force. We need somebody up. Okay, maybe. <laughs> it's not something that the rest of us normally think no, about. But, no. but when you put, like, of course, there, there's going to be terms. people fighting for space up there. Abs fighting wow. for space. Oh, see what I did there? Oh, literally. Didn't, didn't, didn't it on no. purpose. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.